Katrina is better. Yeah. Okay. It's better. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> yes. It's not that formal and kind of odd creates like an extra barrier. I feel. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Well, I respect the office and that's why I ask. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This Is Van Color, I am joined by a rising star in British Columbia's political landscape. Bowen Ma, who of course has been on the podcast on episode 77 and recently on episode 105, has been on my case to talk to this person. So today's guest has been on my radar for quite some time, but the timing could not be more perfect to have her on right now. She is absolutely a role model for so many of us. She's the member of the Legislative Assembly in British Columbia, representing the BCNDP in the riding of Burnaby Lougheed. She was a school trustee on the Burnaby Board of Education, and she worked in provincial and federal constituency offices for over 10 years. Her dad was a member of Tai Chung's city council, so it runs in the family, clearly. She has been the BC Minister of State for Child Care since 2017. She is here via the magic of Zoom. She is Minister Katrina Chen. Katrina, how are Hi, you? Mo. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm so excited to be able to chat with you. Well, I'm really excited about this too. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. You know, this was short notice, and I want to preface our podcast by saying this. Last week's episode with Dr. Amanda Watson blew up, and I'm not joking. I, I was flooded with messages from moms who were floored by the podcast. I even had people in my life that I hadn't heard from in a long time reach out and say, holy smokes, I needed to listen to that. And I knew after that recording that it was special. I called it. I said it was my perfect episode. It was magic. And when it came out, I messaged you, and we haven't really chatted much in the past, but I said, hey, you know, as, as the Minister of, for Child Care, if you have some time, can you listen to this? And if you're bored, you know, by all means, turn it off. And you listen to it, and I'm sure your thread caught the attention of the Premier's office because he shared it online as well, and that's where I want to start. I'm not looking for praise, but you tweeted that as a juggling mother, you had tears in your eyes listening to Dr. Watson. What did she say that resonated with you so much on an emotional level? Well, I, I think the whole episode, uh, oh, sorry, um, podcast really moved and encouraged me in many ways. And it really resonated with me as a single parent with a young child and also as an immigrant um, with no family here. I mm. definitely feel that... Um, I can connect with the the phrase uh, as a juggling mother, <laughs> we juggle and, you know, we try to make things work among our, you know, work responsibilities, childcare responsibility and all the other things in our lives. And I have to say that in many ways, I feel uh, privileged that I am, you know, I have been able to find solutions uh, despite all the juggles, mm -hmm. but you know, my experience is not alone and I am not alone in this. And I think Dr. Watson said it really well that, you know, we can do this on our own. And I feel like, you know, that 
a podcast really helped me to, you know, I feel like I connected with it. And, you know, there's so many people out there who share similar struggles. And, you know, one thing she said about how women often, you know, try to push our limits to perform and mm-hmm. to show our value. <laughs> I also echoed a lot with that. As well. and <laughs> I started reflecting actually on, on my own experience and what I've been doing and like, you know, yeah, why do we always have to do that to perform, to show that we're strong, to show that we can make it work? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes we forget to look after ourselves, which is so key to look after our children. Do you personally feel that societal pressure of, you know, always putting on a happy face and not being perhaps completely forthright with the struggle that it is being a juggling mother? Totally. I, I, I do feel that there is some sort of um, expectation or just the environment that we grew up with that, you know, you need to show that you can do it, you can make it work, mm-hmm. especially, you know, with my work as a politician. Right? <laughs> of we course. No, no one wants to hear a whining politician. <laughs> <laughs> totally. We definitely have to show that, you know, we have the ability to make it work. And I think that is why I, and it connects to my work as well for childcare that mm-hmm. I've connected with so many parents and moms moms who, you know, shared a lot of stories about their struggles. Uh, And again, we're not alone in this. And sometimes we also need to put in that intersectional lens about the diverse needs of families nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. So many families have to work two jobs to make the ends meet or three jobs or four jobs. (laughs) I've heard a lot of stories and, you know, families who are immigrants like me with, you know, more a little uh, sorry little supporting in Canada well I have a lot of friends and I I often count on my amazing friends to help out but Mm -hmm. you know there's different layers to that or families who have children who require extra support needs Um, and how you know as a government and as a society how do we support those uh, changing needs and diverse needs is very important. Absolutely and Dr. Watson really laid out a very compelling case for universal affordable and good quality child care making it central to addressing structural wealth inequality in particular. Do you think British Columbians share the sentiment about how important and transformative your file childcare really is? And I ask this mostly out of ignorance. As you listen to the podcast, you know, I'm not very hip to a lot of these issues because they're outside of my wheelhouse. (laughs) But when I look at the news and I hear about $10 a day daycare, I really hear this idea of the money that the families will save as opposed to how much it can actually change the lives of women, children, and families. I think British Columbians uh, generally know the importance of childcare because there are so many struggling parents and even grandparents. I actually have a lot of grandparents who are advocating for universal inclusive childcare system. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't have a young child in your family, you must have heard the stories from your friends, from your relatives and from others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the kind of the gap there is that that not everybody realize how key childcare and early learning is to the well-being of the whole family. Um, when parents have the ability to return to work, to pursue their career or educational goals, how crucial that is uh, to connect with our economy um, when parents have those choices and abilities. And also the early learning piece is crucial for our young children. Mm-hmm. A child's brain actually developed the fastest before the age of five. Those are crucial years to shape a child's uh, future in some ways and with their social emotional learning that is so crucial to connect to the K to 12 years. So I think those are the things that we probably, you know, we need to do a better job uh, to make sure people realize that connection. And also it's really connected to equality. 
especially uh, gender equality. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the early learning sector, and if you think about historically that women has been the primary caregiver of young children, the current uh, early learning care sector, the early childhood educators, the sector has about 97% of women. Hmm. And, and that is kind of a, a really a number that makes you think about why mostly women and what do we do to make sure that um, we can address this equality issue and equity uh, issue. And, and that is why I think our, I'm proud that our government since 2017 has really put a focus on making sure we focus on creating more assets for childcare. Um, you know, in three short years, we've accelerated the creation of spaces. Now we have funded and supported over 20,000 new licensed childcare spaces. And we need to bring down the cost of childcare because that's has been such a burden to families. Um, childcare can be more the, than the cost of your housing, your mortgage, your rent. Mm-hmm. Um, so bringing down and making sure more children can receive affordable childcare. And currently, I think we have um, about 35,000 families or so that have received $10 a day childcare. And we also need to support the workforce that, you know, it's a workforce, 97% of women who have done the, so, such an important job to look after our young children. And we need to make sure that they have better compensation, they feel supported with their work, and also creating an inclusive environment for all children and all families with diverse needs. I like that idea of not just focusing on, you know, the cost savings or this idea of putting money back in your pocket, but this idea of how important it is for a child's well-being. I mean, we look at education in terms of school-age children that way, right? We're not thinking of, oh, it's it's free education, I'm saving money. We think about it has to be good quality education. It's so important to have good teachers and good school environments. And I think that message, I mean, just for me as someone, like I said, not in that system, I just feel like sometimes in the media, we focus too much on the $10 a day part or how much money it'll save as opposed to like, this is so important for our kids. Totally. And I think, you know, when we talk about quality, accessibility, affordability, and inclusion, those things have to work together. Mm -hmm. Um, We've looked at other jurisdictions that sometimes move so quickly on affordability before forgot about quality and supporting the workforce, or you build so many spaces, but how about the cost of those spaces? So all those has to go together at the same time and have to have investment um, at the same time. So Katrina, I know we already touched on this and I don't know how familiar you are with this podcast, but I like to get personal. I like to talk about (laughs) feelings. So I want to know about you on a personal level. You have a young child. Prior to being elected as an MLA, what was your experience in finding affordable childcare for your son? And how did that affect your family? Um, Childcare is very personal to me. um, But I, again, I don't think I'm alone uh, with my experience. Many parents in BC and many parents um, mothers and fathers I've met share similar struggles. So when my son was born, um, you know, as many other families, you look at your income, you look at your work hours, you look at the cost of childcare and a very long wait list. Uh, we, um, you know, finally got a call after a year. And by the time we got a call from the center, you know, we t- looked at our situation. Uh, we decided, um, my uh, son's father at the time and I, you know, kind of balanced everything and decided that I'll be the person uh, who continued to work and mm-hmm. uh, he would be the primary caretaker uh, staying at home and look after our son. And that wasn't an easy choice um, because, you know, at the time, you know, we're trying to make up for the loss of income. So uh, for a period of time, I worked three jobs. Really? <laughs> and wow. the other thing, 
Yeah. <laughs> so I had a full-time job and was two kind of casual and part-time job. And I was just, well, I, part of, a uh, part of my job was being a school trustee as well. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I think Dr. Wasson also said that really resonated and connected with me is that I remember during that period of time, I always feel guilty. Um, you know, I worked a lot um, and always working. And I remember, I cannot count the number of times that I would leave home and my son would be crying and didn't want me to go. And I, I would kind of struggle and I would cry. <laughs> I would just be like, I don't want to go to work. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to be with him. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this and I think that was one of the many reasons I, I actually um, continued to nurse my son. So I, I continued with breastfeeding until he was past three after the provincial election, actually. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And that was a long time. Normally, you know, a lot of moms do it a year or two or so. Um, but I think I continue with that because I always feel guilty and I wanted to connect with my son more and, you know, being able to nurse him and, and breastfeeding was a way, you know, every evening I would put him to bed and he would be in my arms and, mm-hmm. you know, well, we enjoy that moment together. But it was that sense of guilt <laughs> that, you know, drove me in. And like, you know, Dr. Watson talked about the um, the juggling mother. That's how you, you try to juggle. Yeah. But again, I my story, I, I have to say, I, I, I'm very privileged, right? Now I continue to um, struggle sometimes with finding before and after school care. He's school age now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm privileged in many ways. I, you know, I have a very supportive work environment. My caucus, um, my team, my staff are very supportive uh, when it comes to, you know, trying to make sure I can meet my childcare needs, um, juggling work here and there. Um, not many parents have those choice. I've met single mom. I, I remember this mom who had a good uh, government paying job, has three kids, both needed care. Um, and she struggled so much and she couldn't find care, the cost and the access, um, not being able to, you know, um, get a call from a child care that has availability. She decided actually to stay home. She quit her job and um, lived on income assistance for a period of time. And she said just that was the worst time she described to me of her life. Yeah. That she felt um, that she wasn't contributing to the economy. She wasn't continuing with her career and, and she wasn't happy. And and that really hurts a family. From a policy standpoint, take me back to 2017. You're obviously very familiar with the challenges of childcare. You're familiar yeah. with the challenges of motherhood. You're a rookie MLA, though, and you get appointed the Minister of State for Child Care. What did that file look like when you first assumed office? I remember um, there were so many times I would just sit in my office and looking at some of the challenges and gaps, and I would just ask myself, how come nobody has ever put a focus on childcare? How come nobody has ever um, looked at those gaps before? And I'm pretty sure somebody has, like, you know, people must have talked about it. And, and there's the advocates have been, you know, parents and families have been advocating for this for years, but how come the government has never tried to pull it together and try to make sure we make some systematic changes? So when we came um, to government in 2017, we really inherited what the advocates call the childcare chaos. <laughs> Hmm. Childcare is broken into so um, many pieces and even, you know, it's in four different ministries in BC where one of the, I think we're the only one or two jurisdictions that childcare is in so many ministries. Hmm. So how to pull that together and make systematic changes is, is key. And I remember, um, for example, I uh, met a, a woman uh, in Power River 
she said, you know, I've been advocating for childcare for so many years and I'm finally, I'm so happy to see that a government finally put childcare as a type of priority. And she said, do you know how old my son is? Uh, when I started advocating for childcare, I said, how old is your son? She, she said, my son is about your age <laughs> and I'm going to be a grandmother. So I yeah. want to continue to advocate. So it, it's a, it's long overdue. Um, and, and I think I'm proud and I'm very honored to have the opportunity to do this work as a, a juggling mother and as someone who has the personal experience. But again, I'm not alone in this. We definitely have to fix the system. And, you know, there were some momentum actually in the 1990s um, to build universal before and after school care. Um, and, and also making childcare more affordable. But unfortunately, when the former government came in power, um, it, you know, childcare act, Part of it was repealed. Um, the universal before and after school care never happened. And some of early childhood educators' wages were, the wage enhancement were even taken away. So we have to learn from our past experience. We have to do it as fast as possible. We, and I feel like we have been. <laughs> We've really, you know, we wrote out 36, like over three dozens of initiatives in three short period of time. And we've learned so much because there was so little data at the time. But we have to continue to do this. So this ministry existed before you. So I'm just curious, what was what were they doing? Like you're talking about repealing parts of the Child Care Act. Where was that? Where was the previous focus on when it came to child care? So the child care department always existed in MCFD. Um, but like I mentioned, child care is um, the responsibility of child care. So licensing is under Ministry of Health. Um, the child care team is mostly under MCFD, uh, Ministry of Children and Family Development, mm -hmm. but education also has the early learning piece and advanced education, the Ministry of Advanced Education also has the training piece and, you know, some part of the quality piece on early childhood educator uh, training. Mm -hmm. So again, it's in four different ministries. So when I came in, I, I just, you know, I think the key item was to figure out how can we concentrate on childcare and make sure that there is a focus on childcare. Your first term was three years. You've already talked about some of your accomplishments, but can you broadly, and again, very briefly, because we have to get through a lot, explain what the government has done so far on childcare? So we focused on three pillars, um, which um, are uh, accessibility. So making sure childcare is more accessible, more spaces created. And we have funded and supported over 20,000 new childcare spaces. And to put that in perspective, this is the fastest space creation ever. I think it's um, before the former government in their last three years created about 4,000 uh, in three years. So hmm. 20,000 is, we really pushed hard. I remember traveling across the province, trying to talk to school district, uh, you know, indigenous communities, municipalities, and trying to figure out ways of how do we create childcare together. Um, we need to bring down the cost of childcare. So affordability is the second pillar. Uh, we have three different measures to bring down cost of childcare, income tested, non-income tested. And the most popular one is the $10 a day prototype site. <laughs> uh, that it's like winning a lottery, but it's really a way for us to learn how to do block funding, to fund the center as a whole and to learn from it, to support a center as a whole. So we've learned a lot from those prototype sites and um, about 35,000 families among those three measures that are receiving $10 a day childcare, but a lot of families between the income of um, 80,000 to 100,000 
have seen a significant reduction in their childcare costs too. And we also need to um, support early childhood educators. They are the workforce behind the workforce. And we've seen how important their work is um, mm-hmm. to support children in this really challenging time, especially during the pandemic. So that key, that piece is very important to support the work they do to support quality and also inclusion to make sure diverse needs are being addressed. So those three pillars, again, accessibility, affordability, and, and what was the third one? How would you describe quality. that? Quality. Okay. So... Walk me through this. I know you're going to spin this in a positive light, but let's say you have a young or school-aged child who needs daycare. What does that process look like right now? Because we know that $10 a day daycare is not universal yet. I still hear that it's difficult to find spots in childcare. So break it down for me if you're a parent in British Columbia. So a lot of families would start searching online. <laughs> that was the first thing I did. We do have an online childcare map mm-hmm. that you can look at where are the license spaces. And we also have uh, the license not required centers that look after up to two or three kids. Um, some of them are registered with our local childcare resource referral center, which uh, is another important source of information that families can contact your local childcare resource and referral center to get a list of your local licensed or license not required childcare. So then they'll start searching, they'll put their kids on wait list. Um, A lot of families have shared with me, like in my experience, it took over a year to get a call. Some families waited a year and a half, depending on Hmm. where you are. I've heard two years (laughs) to get final call and your child is older and may have to go into a different type of licensed program. So it is a challenge and school age is a challenge too. Um, We do have a lot of childcare on school ground, which is great because the child can um, go to the center right after school. Mm-hmm. But um, it's not available in every site or the spaces are not enough to meet all the needs. So continue the creation of spaces is definitely key and making sure they, I think one of a uh, goal that we have for the coming years is to create more long-term spaces that become community assets. So it sounds like accessibility is still one of the key challenges right now, getting into childcare itself. Totally. Uh, the wait lists are long and there's still a shortage, although the pandemic has made some impact um, on you know how many parents are using childcare, but we still see a huge need. And um, we definitely have to continue to create spaces and it takes minimum, you know, uh, several months, two years to create licensed quality spaces. So as Dr. Watson noted, you know, $10 a day childcare is a very massive undertaking. It's a very ambitious project. What is the timeline on achieving this province-wide? How long will it take? Because as you said, you know, you have to hire the right people. You have to pay them a good wage to reduce turnover. You have to find the facilities. So, you know, is this a 10-year project? Is this a 15-year project? How far are we looking out in the, in the future? Well, Dr. Watson is correct. It is a massive undertaking. Uh, it's a new social program. And I think probably the biggest policy shift um, for a long time to make sure we create a new system for BC families that can benefit generations to come. Um, so the BC NDP endorsed the $10 a day plan, which is put together by the Coalition of Childcare Advocates. And in their plan, it's a 10-year plan. And we've done a lot of work in the first three years to build the foundation. And like I mentioned, we've learned a lot because there were very little data before. Hmm. So I think we need to continue to make progress, uh, significant progress every single year, step by step. We've invested a historic 
$2 billion in childcare. Um, but, you know, that's not it. We have to, it's building a system. And, and every year we have to make some progress. And, and with COVID, you really see how childcare uh, has been highlighted uh, as one of the top priority for economic recovery. In September, prior to the election, Premier Horgan blamed the BC Greens for $10 a day childcare not being fully implemented. Is this fair because BC Greens leader Sonia Firstenau seemed to work quite closely with you and you <laughs> seem to have a good working relationship with her? She also seems to be very aligned with, you know, the bigger picture goals. I'm sure there might be some disagreements, but there seems to be a lot of agreement there. Was he fair in blaming the BC Greens? <laughs> well, I consider Sonia a, a friend and I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate her support and working with me closely um, on our journey to inclusive universal childcare. And she is a strong ally on this. Um, and we worked well together. But I do remember in the beginning of our journey, when we first formed the government at the time, that there were a lot of different uh, ideas shared um, from the Green Caucus, that there were some ideas about, um, you know, it shouldn't be universal, it should be income tested, mm -hmm. or do we focus on families with uh, one parent staying at home with early learning peace, or do we uh, go ahead with a $10 a day plan? And I think um, last year when I saw Green Party's platform, um, it does have kind of a different vision, I would say, than the BCNDP plan, which is very based on the Coalition of Child Care Advocates plan and a $10 a day plan that focus on universality. But sometimes this is how I feel during my journey of the work uh, and learning as, um, uh, I would say, a newer politician, uh, as this that was my first turn during the past few years, is that I think sometimes we may share uh, differences of opinions or how we want to do things, but we do share the same vision. The key is to invest in families and making sure families can access affordable quality childcare that meets their needs. And I think we do share that vision and we need to continue with that work. Is Sonia Fursado still involved in the file? I mean, you have a majority government now. So I wonder if, if she's still working with you as much as she was before. Uh, I'm sure uh, we'll, I haven't got a chance to uh, have a conversation with her specifically about childcare yet, um, but I believe we'll be working together on, on the journey and I would always welcome uh, feedback from everyone, uh, especially that I've worked with her very closely during the past few years. So, so her ideas and feedbacks are always appreciated. Did you work with any BC Liberals on this file? Uh, yeah, the, the critic um, always had a lot of questions about the way we invest in universal childcare. Um, and we've, you know, during estimates, we had a lot of uh, back and forth questions and answers and a lot of Twitter interactions as well. Um, and I do have uh, providers who, you know, from different political spectrum and point of views um, have been engaging with us. We actually have a provincial childcare council that um, has diverse uh, experience and ideas from across the province, uh, from childcare and other sectors that gives us a lot of good ideas. So I, I am the type of, I, I always want to learn and, and want to hear differences of ideas and try to find a common ground so we can, again, we need to keep moving ahead. We can slow down. <laughs> so um, maybe we would disagree on small things, but we need to continue to, to do the investment. One difference of opinion that I've seen, and this was one pushed by the BC Liberals in the last election, was having this overall program be income tested. And you've already talked about this a little bit, but what I mean by that, of course, is that high income families would pay more. They would pay $15 a day or maybe even $30 a day if they're very high income. 
Why isn't your vision, the BCNDP's vision, income tested? Like, why does everyone pay the same amount? When you think about public education, um, schools are not income tested and our healthcare system is not income tested. So I firmly believe that when it comes to uh, critical services and important services like this that benefits the whole community, um, I think universality is very important. And when you think about public education, and I often think about the challenges we face in the childcare sector and, and how education, the public education system is so different. Um, you know, you. I think we need to remember a child is a child, no matter how old they are. Mm-hmm. We have a public education system supporting children from five years old to 18 years old. But a child is a child. Um, zero to five is such a critical time. Uh, as I mentioned, that their brain developed the fastest. It's actually a critical time for their development um, that I think... Um, to make sure every family uh, gets the benefits of uh, universal, affordable, quality, inclusive childcare is critical. But that doesn't mean we don't prioritize. So the first three years of our plan, we do have an affordable childcare uh, benefit program. It's a new program that we really increased uh, the income threshold uh, for the eligibility up to 111000 So a lot of middle-income families can also have a further fee reduction. So we have a non-income tested fee reduction that reduce fees up to 350 mm-hmm. but we also have this affordable child care benefit that is income tested and making sure that people who need it the most and if you think about families like my own who used to make about eighty thousand dollar you know out of three jobs that sure. um you really struggle with paying fifteen hundred dollar a month for child care yeah or more. So um, we do have an income tested measure at this time, but I think the goal is to make sure it's universal childcare and also focus on the diverse needs of families. And inclusion is another piece that I, I have been really focusing on is to support children who require extra support, to support culturally inclusive uh, childcare, indigenous-led childcare, um, because our community is very diverse. Obviously, last year and this year, Everything is filtered through the lens of COVID. <laughs> How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected your file, affected childcare in general in BC? Well, I do want to take this opportunity uh, to thank all the early childhood educators who have worked so hard on the front lines, um, serving our children and families' needs. Um, and I think the pandemic really highlighted the gaps and the challenges we have in this broken system, right? When we started the work, there was no system and we have been building that system in three years, but the gaps are still there. Um, For example, we have done the wage enhancement for early childhood educators for $2 an hour, but this sector is really struggling. A lot of people, a lot of early childhood educators, um, you know, they, you know, they're concerned about their work, their mm-hmm. health and safety, how do they maintain safe operation during the pandemic. And I have heard that some early childhood educators are like, you know, my wages are too low and I don't feel supported enough and I'm going to go to do another job. I, I'm going to change my work. Um, so, you know, we, we continue to see those struggles and the impact on parents' assets. There's so many essential services workers that need childcare. So it highlighted the need uh, for this workforce behind the workforce and the importance of childcare. So the good news is we've got a lot of attention. <laughs> so even the business community, I, I'm getting Board of Trades and Chamber of Commerce saying that we need childcare because we need our workers to come back. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, when it 
it comes to challenges, um, there's opportunities. And um, during COVID, we have acted as quickly as possible to make sure we provide temporary emergency funding to support providers. We've learned a lot from that as well. We were the only jurisdiction that provides funding to um, open facilities, but also closed facilities so they can come back and, and maintain their services mm-hmm. because we still have a shortage of spaces. So. I think we've learned a lot from the pandemic and we're going to turn those challenges into opportunities in the coming years. Is childcare going to be rolled into the Ministry of Education? Because there was an article in the Tri-City News that said schools might be responsible for childcare and eventually your file will be in the portfolio of the Ministry of Education. And what's the reasoning behind that, if that's true? Yeah, uh, it's in my mandate letter that uh, it is moving to education because um, it's the best place. And if you look at other uh, jurisdictions in Canada or across the world, uh, around the world, that um, t- childcare tend to be uh, with Ministry of Education. And this is also something that advocates and early uh, childhood educators and parents um, um, have been asking for a long time. And the reasons for that is, um, first of all, on the early learning piece, um, if you focus on a child's early learning, their social emotional needs. It is different from education, but there is a strong connection there um, that we need to make sure that there is a smooth transition into the K-12 system. And there has been pilots that's done across BC. There's a pilot called Seamless Day Transition uh, to make sure early childhood educators can work with uh, school educators, teachers, support staff to make sure a child is supported as a whole and they learn from each other. And there's other programs that uh, have been very successful as well. And from a parent perspective, which is very important, mm-hmm. um, you know, having it with Ministry of Education can also create a lot of childcare on school grounds, um, which is easy for parents to drop off their older kids at the school, the younger kids at the childcare, and also to make sure the child is very familiar with the school community. I always see uh, schools, uh, especially when I was a school trustee, I'm always proud of that the school is like a little hub. It's a community hub um, for our community. And I think childcare can be like that too. And it could be a long-term asset for our community and we can have a lot of um, success um, building childcare close to our schools and on school grounds. And so I ask this because I have a friend that is actually worried about this. She has a son who currently has childcare on school grounds and she loves that. She thinks it's so much more convenient. The son also has some special needs, so it's even more convenient that he knows exactly where to go. There's no mix-ups. But is there a risk that if childcare is rolled into education, it won't carry the same voice for advocacy if it were its own separate but related ministry or file. Like the worry for my friend here is that if it gets absorbed as an arm of education, the importance of childcare will get lost in the shuffle or that now it has to compete with all the other subfiles within the education ministry. Well, I think that's part of my focus too, to make sure childcare is always a priority. We're currently under MCFD, Ministry of Children and Family Development. Um, and, you know, it has been a priority for this ministry. And I think moving into education, uh, it has to be a priority as well. And there has to be a focus. But I, I think the key of why education is that a child is a child, regardless of how old they are. And I think we need to really change the, the culture of how we think about the system as well, that we need to focus on that child um, from zero to 18 and, and making sure that there's this smooth system. And I, I, I totally 
um, kind of echoes your friend's concerns about, you know, why if there's not a focus. But I think that's something I think as a government, um, when there is a political will to make sure it continues to stay as a priority, that it has to stay as a priority and it has to stay with a focused lens. And and early learning is different um, somewhat from education. Mm-hmm. You know, it focuses more on the development of a young child. It's not so you know, much focus on the, the literacy or other parts um, or the education part. It is key parts, but it, it really focuses on the social emotional learning and the development of a child. And we need to continue to have those lenses. And I think there's a lot to that we can share and learn between early childhood educators and teachers and support staff, and especially for children who require extra support. Um, I think actually the connection with education would be a benefit um, to connect the early year services to make sure we um, have data, um, have information about the child. We continue to track the child's development and growth and then connecting it to the K-12 piece. So this Ministry of Child Care will still exist even though it'll be under education. Is that fair to say or is it completely going to be absorbed? So ch- child care is not a ministry on its own. Right. Um, it's always been a department uh, under uh, MCFD, but it also um, connects to other pieces like licensing under Ministry of Health, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And uh, education on the early learning piece. So basically the move is more about how do we make sure we focus on, uh, like I said, the child and the smooth transition between, you know, zero to five and K to 12. Um, but the, the actually, it, it, you know, it's never been its own ministry. But I think what we have to do is to make sure it, it is a priority. No matter what ministry it, it is under, no matter, you know, we're, what we're trying to do now is also to pull it together, right? Like licensing under Ministry of Health, it, it, it does create some extra barriers and challenges for me to be able to work among so many ministries as minister of state. And I think that's why my position was created is to try to, you know, um, get beyond those barriers and pull it together with a focus. So no matter where it lands, and I think education is the best place to land. And that's something, again, advocates has been pushing for a long time um, is to still have that priority and that focus on childcare and making sure the child is focused no matter how old they are. Just to clarify, so there will still be a minister of state for childcare, but it will be under education, or is that role not going to be there anymore? Um, I think during our turn of government, I hope I'll still maintain this <laughs> position. <laughs> I don't want to lose my uh, minister of state <laughs> job, and I, I love and I'm so privileged and honored to do this work. So I, I hope, yes, I, I will continue to do the work in the coming years. But um, in terms of whether if the minister of state position will always be there with government changes, different political parties, um, I, I, I don't know how the future will be like. Um, you know, the it could be, you know, sometimes, you know, if you look at other Canadian jurisdictions that the minister responsible for education could also be responsible for early learning. Or there could be a minister of state that uh, puts an extra focus on early learning piece. So there's mm-hmm. different models of doing that. But in the near future, I, I do see, you know, our government is very committed in childcare. It continues to stay as a top priority. So I'm, I would uh, hope and I believe that Premier Horgan will keep this position there for a while. <laughs> very quickly, I, I want to shift gears here. On the campaign trail, you promised free contraception if the BCNDP were reelected. Obviously, you're reelected. And so I have a question, and it's coming from the perspective of a dumb dude who doesn't understand. I'm not not here to argue with you. I just want to learn. Why is this important? Why should taxpayers 
pay for women's contraception? It's actually a simple matter of equity and fairness, it, and it's gender equity too. Um, for too long, uh, the cost of uh, contraception has been mostly on the backs of women, transgender, and non-binary people. Um, when you think about how men um, mastectomies are actually covered on the MSP, um, mm -hmm. women continue to pay out of their own pocket for birth control, mm. and the cost can add up quite significantly as well. Um, I believe, you know, in, in a woman's lifetime, if you pay for um, birth control pills, it could over uh, be over $10,000. So um, I think it is important that we provide an equitable access and make sure that women also have the, the ability um, to take control and, and, and have, you know, the, the cost is not going to be a barrier for us to decide on our um, reproductive right. And it's, you know, this issue actually connects, it always reminds me of another thing that we did during the past few years is to make sure um, students have uh, free access uh, to free menstrual products in washrooms in all public schools. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another important move to ensure that gender equity part. I always remember the day that it was announced. I happened to be visiting a school and a mom, which is something I never think about before as, you know, I consider myself privileged not to worry about the cost of my menstrual products. But a mom came to me and she said, I was so happy to hear on the news that this is happening because I have three girls and I am a single mom, lower income, and the cost of it can be so uh, hard on my girls. And sometimes, mm. you know, they would try to, you know, use one pads for the whole day and that's very uncomfortable. Um, so I think this is, again, a free contraception is a gender equity issue. When we look at these ideas, free contraception, uh, free menstrual products in schools, and even universal childcare. I mean, the way you've laid it out, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and, <laughs> Thank you. No, uh, no, I'm being truthful, and it, it makes a lot of sense. And, and obviously, Dr. Watson made some arguments for childcare as well that made a lot of sense. I feel like for a lot of people, perhaps in our generation, we're both in our 30s, we haven't really heard this conversation before until this government, and it might have not even been on the table. We just thought this was the way it is. Does this newness or novelty of, of these ideas represent perhaps a gender inequity in government historically? Um, I think that could be one of the factors um, that I'm very proud that our caucus is so diverse. And actually this turn, we've elected so many young families. Um, like for example, yesterday I, we had a women's caucus meeting and I shared uh, a little bit about my recent childcare struggles. It, it's, you know, it's always funny that I, you know, as a minister of state for childcare, I struggle with childcare. <laughs> um, and I just heard a lot of echoing from my colleagues and not just women in our caucus, but we have a lot of um, fathers uh, with young children too, who shares the same struggles and concerns. And I think, I think yes, I, representation does um, make a difference um, that when you have more people with diverse experience coming into government, you advocate for a lot of issues that um, sometimes was never a priority before, like childcare. Mm -hmm. But I have to recognize that those issues have always existed, like childcare, you know, the almost the grandmother that I talked about from Power River, she's been advocating for this for 30 years. Right. People have been talking about this, the work of the Coalition of Childcare Advocates, Early Childhood Educators, and many other organizations have been talking about this for many, many years. Um, uh, you know, one friend told me this, that 
political will um, will get us a long way. I think when you have people working together and have the political will and, and the community working together, like Dr. Watson said that, you know, I can't do this alone. We have to work together. And I think those issues and with our changing community as well, that, you know, with affordability, so many parents cannot make the ends meet with one job or two jobs they, or both of them have to work. I think um, those issues will continue to come and we need to, as a government, to make sure we um, continue to adjust and look at our policies and bring forward positive changes. And so on the topic of political will, when we talk about free contraception, when will we see this enacted and has anything been done so far? I know obviously you're not sitting in legislature right now, but where are we with that? Uh, from my understanding, more details uh, will come soon, but this is really part of our um, fair pharma care plan to reduce or eliminate deductibles um, for a lot of uh, lower income British Columbians. Um, actually, for the first time in 15 years, we did that in, I think, 2019. Um, and that plan includes a lot of women who have um, who can have better access to cover their prescription, uh, prescription medications, including contraceptions. So that's it's part of the work that we've been doing for the past few years and we want to make sure that you know regardless of your income contraceptions are free and i also understand that some clinics um, operated by fraser health and vancouver coastal health um, also provides uh, low and free contraceptions but in terms of when this will be fully rolled out i i believe more details will come soon from the ministry of health that has been really busy during this pandemic <laughs> can we expect to see free contraception budgeted in the April budget? Well, I'm not the Minister of Finance. <laughs> We're in the budgeting <laughs> process. So sorry, I don't have, actually, I don't know. I don't have, I don't have the answer. <laughs> sure, sure. You're going to refer me to Minister Robinson. I'm, I'm going to bug her about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Katrina, as we wrap up here, you wear your heart on your sleeve. I love that about you. I actually think that more politicians need to be expressively emotional. You shared a lot of personal things on the podcast as well. And I love that. I think that's important. And when I say the word emotional, you know, it doesn't mean throwing wild fits. It means just being a human being and not just from like a political point, but just as a culture. And this is something I've touched on many times on this show is that I think we need more emotional authenticity. So many of us are expressing what is so normal, whether that's joy or anger or sadness. But I think by expressing those things, honestly, we can cultivate a culture that expresses emotions in a very healthy way. And I read that you were visibly emotional while being sworn into government in 2017. When that infamous Jane Thornthwaite video was released on Twitter in October, you immediately expressed anger and outrage. I mean, even over Twitter, I think people could tell that you were genuinely pissed off. I see you and, and I respect you as someone that is fearless in expressing your emotions. And because, you know, this is an emotional show and I, I like that. <laughs> Not every episode here, of course, has tears, but, you know, I'm constantly trying to get a, a real textured conversation out of people and that involves emotions. So I'm just wondering, is this something that you've thought about? Because I know that many adults, like forget politicians, but many adults have been ingrained with this idea that they can't show their emotions. But you seem to be quite comfortable and, and open with yours. 
Well, I think it could be because of my experience of working in the grassroots. Um, my job before, um, you know, I knocked on a lot of doors um, as a community organizer and in my years of working for uh, the constituency offices uh, federally and provincially, my job was to work with people. And I think you, it's important that I think as a politician, we need to let people know that they're not alone. And I think, to be honest with our feelings, is also a way to connect and make sure people don't feel alone. And as an individual, I always appreciate, like, when I listen to uh, Dr. Watson, you know, she made me feel like I'm not alone. And I appreciated that. And I think, like you said, we're all human. Um, and we need to let others know that, you know what, yes, things can be tough at times, but we can go through this together. And I'm very thankful that you mentioned about, you know, I was emotional in 2017 when the premier asked me to do this work because coming to Canada on my own as an immigrant, I never imagined that this would happen to me. I never imagined that I would become a politician and become the minister responsible for a new social program. And I think that opportunity that Zhang gave me really touched my heart and and or the community actually gave me i think it's the community that elected me and 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 allow me to do this work and as an immigrant i think that and i feel like bc is an inclusive place it is a place where i want my son to grow up to create to be able to thrive and i think everyone in our community should have those equitable opportunities to thrive i love that and i love like i said i love the emotion, the personal experience you bring to it. You know, people can judge the results and, and that's what pundits and opposition parties are for and they can absolutely look at, at your work. But there's that passion, I think, that resonates that, that is quite undeniable. So I, I appreciate that. And you know what? If, if the BC government is ever looking for like a special advisor of feelings, you know, <laughs> keep, keep me in mind. All right. Okay. Yes, thank you. And and I really enjoyed this opportunity uh, connecting with you. And also, uh, again, I thank thank you for um, encouraging us to uh, share our feelings. (laughs) Thank you. Well, well, first of all, thank you for listening to that podcast last week. I, I really appreciate that. And it was very humbling. And it meant a lot to me that it meant a lot to you. So I, I, I appreciate that. I want to say, you know, we organized this very last minute for me, but you were very accommodating. Usually I like to let a little time pass between episodes on the same theme, but after last week, after the feedback I got, it was so urgent for me to chat with you and to follow up that cultural discussion with a more policy political discussion. So I appreciate your time. What is your call to action to the listeners and to British Columbians? I think we can think about, you know, every single day, um, how do we, especially during this global pandemic, um, you know, not just on childcare, but on equity, uh, how do we make sure people still feel connected and people feel supported? And, you know, I, I think Dr. Henry said this well, we're in a same storm, but we're on different boat and people's mm-hmm. experience may be very different. Um, I think to be able to connect with others and support good social programs <laughs> like childcare um, that, you know, helps to build a more equitable community is something we can do and we can support each other on this. And, and like I said, I cannot do this alone without the community and the advocates pushing for better changes for so many years. Um, that really motivated the government to put this as a top priority. And we need to continue to push for that momentum. And, and it's not an easy journey to build a new social program, but we can make it as long as everybody's working together. So thank you. 
I love it. Minister Chen, Katrina, thank you so much. Please do keep listening to the podcast. You're very influential. Of course, you, you brought a lot of listeners, including the premier who has been on the show, of course. But honestly, being able to chat with you means a lot. And I'm sure many of the listeners from last week also feel the same way. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I've subscribed to your podcast. So I will continue to listen. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's a ringing endorsement. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. People, two episodes about motherhood and childcare back to back. January 1st, I would not have called it, but honestly, I love it. This might be an ongoing theme on the podcast this year. I don't know. But what I do know is that I've actually taken an interest in it. And in large part, it has to do with today's guest, who really explained a lot. She got personal as well. I said she was a role model at the top of the show, and I mean it. She's the BC Minister of State for Child Care. She's one to watch, BC. She is Minister Katrina Chen. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.